Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Nina Pantic, joined in this episode by Irina Falcone, my co-host. Hey guys, how's it going? And our special guest, Rajiv Ram. Rajiv, thank you for joining us. Yeah, happy to be here. All right, let's get things started with one of our favorite questions these days. What is your quarantine life like? Where are you? What do the days look like? Yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty different, I must say, from coming from someone who's played tennis, as you guys know, for a long time, uh, you know, where we're used to traveling weekly, to be sitting in one place for a couple of months is a bit strange, but uh, lucky to be in Northern California, uh, where the weather's really nice, so I try to get outside most days doing something, um, you know, four or five days a week of different fitness stuff, and then, yeah, even on the other days, bike rides, walks. You know, whatever it may be, uh, just to sort of you know be outside as much as I can because that's yeah it's it's nice to do that, but uh, it's definitely definitely different. Is California your home base? Has it been for a while? Yeah, or? so I'm from Indianapolis, which is where I spend my wife and I spend a fair bit of time there. But we also have a house in Northern California. Our parents, both of our parents, live down live in um, in Indiana still, so we go there a bit. Um, but we spend a lot of time here, and sort of yeah, the quarantine sort of basically started the day before I was supposed to leave for Indian Wells, which was uh, you know we were out here. I was packed, suit, uh, suitcases were packed. They're actually still packed, funnily enough. And then uh, um, and then this whole thing started. So then we've been out here since then. All right. So you were on the ATP Council before, Regine. I know. I just wanted to know if maybe you have some intel into when things might come back, or which tournaments are going to be canceled next, or any kind of inside info. Yeah, no, not really. I, I basically hear things when everybody else hears them. We get, you know, mass emails saying, okay, this, you know, the tour's canceled up until this date. And the last one I think was, you know, just the cancellation of Wimbledon and the whole grass court season and all that. Uh, I learned about the French Open moving their date on social media, which I, maybe is what most people learn about it on. I have no idea. But no, to be honest, uh, it's just, uh, you know, we kind of, for me at least, I just wait to see when the next message comes to see, at this point, you know, how much longer the tour is going to be officially canceled. But I think everyone is feeling like it's, you know, it's going to be hard to, to play even in, in the middle of July at this point. Have you been hitting like at all? I know I've spoken to a few players and I know some of the top 10 girls and they just haven't hit a ball since, you know, this whole thing started. And I'm just curious, you know, have you even like done fitness? Like, how are you like keeping in shape? Yeah, so tennis is obviously tough. I haven't played too much. Uh, there's a there's one guy I know with a private court that, yeah, I don't even know if I'm supposed to be doing it or not. But you know, the couple of times I've been up there to, to hit some balls. But uh, fitness, I uh, have a few things at home. Like I said, the weather is really nice, and I have some room in the in the back of the house here that you know I can do some things. Um, so it's been a bit uh, makeshift, let's say. Um, I have a, a a trainer that I got to know before this started she actually has some she has some equipment of her own so like we have a a deal that we do where she actually brings it over some of the days I clean it I use it bring it back to her car she like stays six feet away from me the whole time like you know tells me what to do you know gives runs me through a program 
I bring it back to her car. She cleans it, put it back, puts it back in the car, and and we go from there. Uh, but I, I'm not even sure. You know, I, we try to be as safe as possible, but that's really it for for all that. You know, um, I have a bike here that like a like a, an actual bike that I've never gotten more use. I try to be on it a couple times a week. You know, riding around. But yeah, uh, that's pretty much it. I feel like you know a lot of the other restrictions are going to loosen up well before we actually start playing tennis again. So I'm not really worried about. You know, I think we'll all have plenty of time to practice and all that before we actually start competing again. I was actually talking with Jamie about this uh, yesterday about how many different things are going to change once we go back on court. Cause mm, I'm sure you've yeah. heard that there's actual like tournament play that's happening here in Saddlebrook. There's an event I think happening in California and Germany. There's a few spots that are conducting almost like mm-hmm. a tennis experiment. And uh, you know, one of the things that she told me was that the balls actually have initials on them and only you can only use the balls and you can only serve with the balls that have your initials on them. And we were discussing, you know, when we actually get back on tour, you know, is there going to be a air high five? Like, are you going to shake hands? Like, is there going to be any interaction whatsoever? Like when it's new balls, how are you going to get those balls? Like, do you have to yeah. get them yourself? Like there's just going to be so many different changes. Yeah. I, I think that's just in every walk of life, to be honest, it's not just tennis. I mean, like, maybe it's going to become normal for people to wear masks in grocery stores if if they have even the slightest bit of a cold or a cough or something like that, or, you know, having meetings like this instead of actually having meetings, you know, when in person, I I don't know. I think there's going to be a ton of things that are going to become way more normal than they ever were before. And yeah, in our sport, we're going to have a lot of that, I think. The reality of it has not sunk in at all, sunk in at all for me. I just can't believe that this is happening, even though it's been over six weeks at this point. But for, especially for you, you had some momentum, crazy momentum going before all this. You won the Australian Open, your first men's doubles yeah. Grand Slam title with Joe. Casual. Yeah. I mean, you, you were up to a career high number five in doubles. I mean, things were going swimmingly, uh, I have to say. What was your start of 2020 like? Did you, did you feel different going into this John Open? Because I know you put up an Instagram caption saying, Something like fifty eighth time is the charm. Did yeah. You have anything else going for you differently this in Melbourne? Well, I I actually didn't even know that. So apparently it was my fifty eighth Grand Slam, which is a record if if you want to call it that. Before somebody were to actually win one, but I mean that's a little bit different because I played a lot of the majors and doubles while I was still focusing on singles. So I didn't really felt like in those times I was necessarily a contender to win one. I was just sort of playing because my ranking was high enough to get in, but I was not, you know, I wasn't good enough just to win it because I needed to actually work on, you know, focus on doubles, practice it, get better at it if I wanted to contend. And then only started doing that the last three years, I would say. But uh, I really felt like we were in the situation or in in the position to compete, compete for a major regularly, probably at the U S open last year. I felt like our level had gotten to the point where we were playing good matches, you know, time and time again um, at a level that I felt like was, was, you know, some of the best in the world. So I felt like we really turned the corner, you know, last fall and we, you know, we had a, a good season altogether, but really at the back half of last year is when I felt like we started to play, you know, that uh, a slightly higher level. So it, I'm not going to say I was, you know, I was expecting to win the Australian Open, but I, I guess I wasn't surprised so much so because I felt like we were that, we were at that point for a little while now, you know? So when you say that you turned the corner in the fall, was there anything leading up to it that you did differently this time around? Or was it just the chemistry like yeah. that changed? I or I, We lost a really tough match at the U.S. Open, 7-6 uh, in the third. And it was just one of those matches, as, as you would know for sure, where you felt like you know you had to play just 
3% better at the right time, maybe not even. And, and, you know, that, that could have been not only that match, but it could have been the whole tournament, you know, cause that, that's sort of the, you know, we felt like we were good enough to win the U S open last year and we lost a really tough one. And we, you know, we had a, you know, sit down, talk about what it's going to take and just a bit more openness, a bit more, you know, what we're feeling on the court at the right time, a little more communication with each other. And we started really implementing that in the subsequent tournaments that we played in the fall, you know, in the European and Asian season. And it was like match after match. We, you know, we didn't win everything, but it just felt like the level and the, and that part of it was, was really getting better so that we were getting through some more tougher situations. We were winning matches. Maybe we weren't, when we weren't playing our best and, that started to happen a little bit more. So when we kind of turned up in Australia, it was like, you know, even if we weren't playing our absolute best, I felt like we were ready to win some of those matches. And when you try to win a big tournament over two weeks, that's what it's going to take. Cause I don't think you're not going to play well every day. Certainly you're going to have to fight through some stuff. And so uh, um, that's sort of the big, the big difference for me. I know you won the mixed grand slam title in Australia as well in 2019, but did you feel different after this one? Like as if maybe something was, was life different? Do you, or do you celebrate in a different way? Surely you did. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. I, it's life wasn't really that different, but it is somewhat of a life changing moment, I guess, in the way like me personally, I mean, it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, I, you know, it's not because it was, I mean, I, I've tried to win one of these for a long time and it's, you know, it's just cool to be a small part of tennis history in a way, because, you know, these are four of the four major tournaments and to get my name on one of the trophies in, in the men's doubles is, it was pretty neat. So I just, I felt like it was almost like I felt a bit of relief, I guess, because I, I definitely felt like I was in the mix, but hadn't done it yet. And, um, you know, was, was really looking forward to the next few. Unfortunately, I don't know when that's going to happen, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it is in a way, it is in a way life-changing for me personally, just because I can, I can say I did it, you know, no one's going to be able to take that away. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Hey guys, we're here with special guest Rajiv Ram, where he talks about what it takes to find that perfect partnership on the doubles court. Keep listening. And what happens with the partnership, like with you and Joe? Do you guys talk? Are you guys planning on coming back together? I've never even thought about how teams might be affected by this. Literally, as you guys had decided to play together, you have to take a break. Well, I mean, yeah, we, we actually talk a fair bit once a week or something like that and, and keep up on messaging anyway. But I mean, we played together all of the year before as well. so you know, we were definitely more of an established partnership than maybe some of the other guys. So yeah, have, you know, that's definitely not going to change now. I don't know about some of the other teams. So that's a good question. Some of the other players that may have had shorter commitments or, you know, only going to play a couple of events together and then see what's happening. And yeah, it's, it's actually a really good question. I don't know. I haven't heard about anybody not playing or playing together, but yeah, we we definitely are. So whenever we start again. What, um, this is, I actually, I'm not sure if you would have known the answer to this, um, but I'm just curious, would you have had an idea as to who you would have been playing with in uh, the Olympics had it happened this year? You know, I was actually just starting to like call a few guys and see who would be interested because the way that it works is if you're top 10, if you're ranked in the top 10, you get to pick your partner. So like, I wouldn't have to have had somebody necessarily that qualified by ranking, you know, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 
there's a few players that I was just talking to, you know, seeing if, if maybe they weren't ranked high enough to go in singles or doubles, but I think they're great players. So if they were interested, um, so no, I didn't, the short answer is no, I didn't have an idea of who I was going to be playing with. I had a few people that I had in mind, but I didn't, I didn't commit to anyone or I hadn't made that decision. And I don't even know if it was going to be my decision entirely. I think there's probably, you know, a bit of the captain's input as well, but uh, we, I literally just had one phone call with the captain uh, of the team with David Nankin and then it all it all started going sideways for us so and what about um females for mixed yeah uh, again I I had said it's a little bit of the same thing um you know a few people we had talked to a few people about about playing but I think you know I think in the Olympics in that situation it's a bit of you definitely have the input of the of the captains both men and women so I think it was going to be a like I know I'm supposed to have some talks about it in Indian Wells and just say who is going to play who is not going to play and maybe even team up for some of the mixed doubles like in the Grand Slams before the Olympics just to see if you know one partnership worked out better than the other but I mean it, it obviously went, went away pretty fast after that but no nothing nothing firm you know. Looking back, though, in Rio, you won a silver medal with Venus Williams. And now, I mean, you're 37. She's a few years older than you. I 36, have- but. 36. <laughs> my, my bad. Uh, 36. So you still have, I think you still have many years left. But you never know how this is all going to yeah. play out. Will Tokyo even happen next year? It's kind of thrown everything off a little bit. But you played with Venus Williams at the Olympics and medal. That must have been one of the most incredible experiences for sure in your career. Yeah, to be honest, just going to the Olympics at all was pretty amazing. I mean, when you're, you know, in tennis, I, I guess I, for one, never really thought about the Olympics. You think about the Grand Slams, think about some of their big, big tournaments, maybe even Davis Cup, Fed Cup, that kind of thing. But, you know, the Olympics, I always thought about as a sport, uh, an event that people from other sports play. But then when, as a tennis player, when I got to be on the team and just be around that environment of such great athletes and ambassadors for different sports from all over the world be part of the opening ceremonies I mean to be honest if I the the medal felt like icing on the cake a little bit it was just the experience that I've got to be a part of that was just so incredible and then yeah I mean playing with the legend of the game I mean that sort of happened at the 11th hour when we were picking you know okay there's it was the first year or was no the second year I think of mixed doubles so people didn't really know how you know, we we yeah, no one ever played together before. We just sort of said, okay, you know, again, the captains were like, I think we were the by ranking, we were the two people players that were going to get in, happened to pair up, and then we actually played another American team in the final. So it was pretty cool the that uh, you know that worked out the way that it did. Unfortunately, we didn't win, but other than that, it was cool. <laughs> it was a close match. Uh, I know that Keenan's a tiebreaker, which is just nuts to even even to fathom the idea of being on court for a gold medal and playing a super tiebreaker is beyond insane. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> What kind of, what do you look for in a partner? Cause, and, and what do you think that your strengths are that you need somebody else's strengths to balance out? Cause I know doubles is a bit of a matching game. You got to figure out who really works with you. What do you think you do best and what you want your partner to do best? You know, there's like finisher and setter upper and all kinds of like basics to this. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing that I've learned, cause like I said, I've kind of been really paying attention to this double to doubles, you know, primarily for the last few years is that you, you really need to have someone who you feel like you can trust you can be open with like that communication part part has to be has to be there first and foremost because I mean like the best thing I can do you know on a doubles court is get my partner to play well if he plays well then it makes my job so much easier I don't have to do much you know so it's like if I can say the right thing to put him in a, him or her in a good state of mind to play their best tennis I mean it, it it helps a lot so before even you're talking about game compliment I think that has to be there you have to feel comfortable with you know personality wise and then I think you know 
you try to look for someone who kind of compliments you. You may be things that you don't do so well, you know, they do well and, and vice versa. So like, I, I mean, certainly not the fastest, most agile player out there. So I try to look for someone who's maybe a pretty good athlete to start with and can cover a bit more of the court that way. Um, that's usually my first, my first uh, thought. Um, I hit, hit the, my strength is probably, you know, hitting the ball. Okay. So, you know, again, I try and see if the person at the, you know, who's at the net or my partner that I can set them up because I hit the ball pretty well. So I can put it in difficult spots for the opponent and they can kind of clean up because of their athleticism and their agility and all that. So that's sort of it. And the other thing is I look for someone who serves pretty well. I serve pretty well too. So I feel like if two guys on the court serve well, you kind of take care of half of the games, then you you can be a bit more um, expressive, let's say on the return games. But I think holding serve is such a big part of men's doubles that if, uh, if that goes away, it's pretty tough to win, you know? Honestly, you make it sound so easy. (laughs) (laughs) i mean like listening to you i was like oh yeah that sounds about right that's how they want to slam (laughs) i think people overcomplicate tennis sometimes to be honest (laughs) yeah that's fair that's absolutely fair but you i mean we've we've talked doubles here you've won 20 doubles titles but you've also won two singles titles notably Mm -hmm. in a very particular venue newport one of my favorite places in the world on grass you mentioned serve (laughs) yeah i mean something clearly worked for you there it might have been the grass uh what how did you decide to take a to, to, to take a step back from singles? Because you played in 2017, you played I think one mm-hmm. match or something in 2018, and now you're fully doubles. Did what I, was that? Oh yeah, I did. That's right. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah, no, it was really I stopped really at, at the end of 20 or at the middle of 2017. Actually, at Newport, it was my my last singles match. I felt like that was you know for me it was it it was it was good to do it that way. But it was really just my body. I mean, I felt like I I couldn't put in the hours of training that singles required. Some of the physical stuff that was you know, needed for that. I, it wasn't gonna, you know, I just wasn't gonna be able to do it. I had a few injuries that kept nagging and I just felt like, um, you know, I was sort of, if I kept playing singles, I was going to do neither singles or doubles to my best capacity. So, um, it was, the decision was kind of staring me in the face for a little while. And I just finally decided to pull the plug. Um, that summer I felt like I was in a good situation with my doubles, had a good partner. Um, at the time it was a guy named Raven Clausen. So it wasn't Joe, it was, just, it was another player, but we were, you know, we did pretty well the year before finished, I think top eight in the world. So, you know, I I was, it was, everything was leaning towards that. And I just, um, yeah, it was, it was definitely time because I just knew I couldn't put in the work that was required to play singles at my highest level. So obviously when you play singles, you have to cover a little bit more court than in the doubles. So for someone that's, you know, doesn't really know tennis, what would you say would be the differences between someone that is a singles and doubles player and just someone that is strictly doubles what would you say is the difference in you know time on court time in gym what what would you say are like the key components or the decrease in time yeah I mean that's a great question I think for sure time on court is significantly higher that's actually one of the things I had to struggle with when I started just playing doubles is how many fewer matches I would play and how many fewer like repetitions I'd get under pressure situations because I just was used to playing so much in both you know in a tournament I would always play both singles and doubles so it would generally be at least three or four matches each week and in doubles sometimes you can you know lose a third set tiebreaker in an hour and then you don't play again for a week and a half so it was really a a big change for me in that situation Um, but yeah I think you know I really I commend the guys that to do both at a high level because and the girls because I just feel like it's it's a lot of stress mentally, physically, you have to be ready. You have to be able to, you know, kind of compete, be ready to compete every day, day in and day out and, you know, figure out your schedule. Maybe you play some tournaments just for singles, just for doubles, whatever it is. You end up adding weeks to the schedule. It's more travel. It's, 
it's just more of everything. And I think um, it's, that was another reason in 2016, I played over a hundred matches in singles and doubles. And I felt like if I had another one of those years, that might've been it for my career. You know, I, I might've just have run my body into the ground. So I just felt like, you know, that toll wasn't, it wasn't something I was going to be able to take on anymore. So like the guys and girls that do this for many, many years, it's, it's really, really impressive. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey everyone, you're listening to the Tennis.com podcast with special guest Rajiv Ram. He's telling us about his 2016 Olympic experience with Venus Williams when they won the silver medal. Keep listening. You talk about how uh, physically, it's taxing and it's totally mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a lot for the body. Um, mentally, were there any changes that you had to go through or that you experienced going from singles and doubles to just doubles? I've I've always found just from a personal experience when I play doubles, there's just a certain sense of pressure that I just get because I want to you know I want to win so bad for my partner for your partner yeah um, yeah and so if I play with someone that is there just for doubles, like my pressure just goes way high. I just, Mm -hmm. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Completely. There was a, it was a big change in mindset because when you're playing singles, you win, it's for you, you lose, it's for you. And it's a lot easier to deal with sometimes than, you know, the fact that you're kind of half responsible for somebody else's livelihood, especially like you said, if they're only a doubles player, if they don't play singles. So yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that it was tougher for me to sort of play some of my best tennis because I felt like I had the pressure of, you know, not wanting to disappoint my partner. But I think that's where the communication kind of aspect comes into play. I mean, I was lucky enough to play in these partnerships where we weren't just playing for a week or two, like they were year long commitments. So like, you can be like, Hey, look, I'm, I'm not feeling so well today. I'm, this is bothering me. This is bothering me. And then like that person will likely understand what you're thinking because they're also in the same situation. So, you know, I think that's where it's important just to, to not, sit there and feel that pressure and bottle it up and and not you know try and deal with it with your partner however however you might be because then I think that doesn't really doesn't really help it doesn't really make things easier you know um so I think that's a that was a big thing is just saying you know because if it's singles and you're not feeling good well that day it doesn't matter if you tell somebody else not you're gonna have to figure it out yourself on the court so I I wasn't really used to doing that and that was a, a big change for me that you know, if, if I'm not feeling something, I could actually tell my partner instead of keeping it inside and trying to figure it out by myself, because it's only going to help our team, you know, and, and same with him. Communication is the key to everything. Yeah, I guess so. It's well, like talking about a marriage, really, isn't it? At the end of the day. I was going to say, it sounds like you're picking a partner for life here. A little bit. Yeah. Funny how that was. On a kind of a, on a similar note, in a way, what what do you feel like when people say they're playing doubles just for fun? And when you, you definitely would have noticed a difference in terms of like, prize money, attention, fans, everything when you switched from singles to doubles. Does that weigh on you? Because I think doubles has made a mass amount of progress. I'm sure you've seen it over your career, but it still feels like the little sister to the big, the big dogs. Yeah. And I mean, to be honest, I think in a way it is a little bit. I mean, I, I, I understand the position that doubles is in. I, I, I can't really say that I have an issue 
if somebody plays doubles just for fun, I have an issue if they don't really try very hard. Like that's a problem. I think that, you know, if somebody goes out on the doubles court and, and doesn't give it, you know, doesn't really try and win, however that may be, you know, if they, if they literally go out there to not win, that's a problem. But I think it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a gray area. Um, I think, like you said, I think doubles players, their doubles in general has made some progress. I think, I think we also have to take some of the responsibility as doubles players to promote the game and promote what we do ourselves. And I think the guys on our side, I can't speak for the WTA tour because I don't know as well. I'm not saying they don't, but for us, I feel like the current group of players has really done a, a, a nice job led by the, the Bryans that have done it for so long so well in trying to be innovative and trying to come up with things that help the game and not just help themselves, you know? Yeah, I think we struggle sometimes because we, we are sort of the, the little brother or little sister of the tour that we're sort of always trying to just get that extra little bit for ourselves as opposed to maybe banding together and coming up with a situation maybe that could make our product a bit more attractive. And I think the guys currently, not, not, not everything has worked, but at least we've tried to make those improvements and do some things. You know, for example, we've had like a doubles court in Australia and a few other places where like the, the whole day, the, you know, is, is doubles matches. We've had, you know, different clinics that we put on. We've talked about different scoring systems. We've talked about, you know, having fans have free movement in, in doubles matches, you know, different things like this, that, they're not all going to work. They're not all going to be tried, but at least we're, we're coming up with ideas that I think could make it a bit unique. I mean, you've played world team tennis and you've played the ATP cup. So you have um, a, a sense of experience when it comes to things being changed up in tennis for the better. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's great. And I think, I mean, I think if we, I think one of the big, big issues in tennis in general for us is we don't look at it from the perspective of a fan. You know, we always look at it as in perspective of the players and the coaches and the, you know, tournament directors and all this, but what about the person that's paying Fifty bucks or whatever it is to buy a grounds ticket to come and watch us play. Like, what about their experience? And I think if we think about it from that perspective a bit more, we can really help ourselves. So that was sort of the idea that I remember when I was—I don't think I was on the council, but was still talking with the guys a bit about the stuff. Was having the free movement. You know, it's like you come and you know you catch a—it's—it's—it's it's, it's zero zero, and you're sitting there and for a doubles match, you got to wait three whole games before you can walk inside because somebody—you know—they don't let you in at one zero, and then they—you know—that that seems ridiculous. So like, I would be—I would get disinterested in about thirty seconds that I would go to the next court, you know. And it's like if I knew I could walk into a doubles court whenever I wanted, I would be way more likely to do that. I'm surprised you actually say that because I mean, you—you you don't think that you'd be affected whatsoever if you know a bunch of people just keep coming in if it's like a deuce point, important point. Like, I totally think I'd be affected, but I also feel like that's sort of the, that's sort of the, the give and take of it, right? Like we don't think of it. So I'm being affected by it. Sure. But if I know it's going to happen, I think it's almost worse if you think it shouldn't happen and then it happens. But if you know it, it could happen or it's going to happen, why not try and make the experience for the fan a little bit better than having them stand, you know, in line to wait for you to serve a deuce point when, okay, you know, maybe, maybe they can't come in, you know, on the backs of the court, but maybe they can come in on the sides. Maybe they can at least, you know, maybe they're not going to go to their seat, but they can stand and watch in a certain area, something to where it's just a little bit better than, than what it is right now. And I think for me, it's always, it always bothers me when I know they're not supposed to come in and then they come in. But if I know that it's, yeah, if I know that it's okay for them to do that, then I would probably be a bit less bothered by it. I feel like you put a lot of thought into this. Do you have any plans on what you want to do after your career and how you're going to stay involved in tennis? Sounds like you definitely will be. Yeah, I, I mean, I know that traveling would be hard. So like the idea of coaching full time on tour or doing something like that, that's tricky. But uh, yeah, I mean, I love the sport. Look, I, I'm lucky to do what I love for a living. So I think I, being involved in it in some way would be great. I, I don't really have a, 
a grand plan as to what that would be. But I, I do, I do really enjoy it at all levels, you know, not even just the professional level. I love my time in college and high school tennis and all, all that. It's just, I think it's a, it, it's given me a lot. So I, I, I do appreciate that. Yeah. The college tennis thing, one year at uh, yeah. Illinois and you crushed it. Your team went 32 and zero. You won the NCAA team title. NCAA doubles title and then you're like you know what peace out guys gotta go bro yeah. <laughs> yeah to be honest if I could do it again I would have stayed another year at least at the time it was 2003 and like players were retiring when they were 30 you know if you played past 30 it was an absolute miracle so I thought geez I was 19 if I turned pro then it would be okay I'd be 19 I'd probably have 10 11 good years to try and you know play uh, that was my thought process I'm like yeah this is gonna be over and I'm 30 so I might as well you know, we had a great season and we had a great, I probably knew that I wasn't fully ready or as ready as I could be, but I kind of took my chances because, you know, the fact that we did have a great year and I felt like, you know, I wanted to give it my best shot. Now, I mean, do you have players playing their best tennis in their mid thirties, you know, and singles and doubles both. So it's like, if I had known that, or if I had a little bit of foresight, if you will, um, I would have stayed another year. Cause I think college tennis could have really helped my game even a bit more and just general maturity and all that. I would have been well served to stay another year in school, but, um, that was sort of what happened at that time. Could you see yourself like as a college coach? <clears throat> I could absolutely see myself as a college coach. <clears throat> um, I think it's one of the best sort of um, ways that we have the best sort of formats that we have in tennis, you know, six players of that age playing for their school singles and doubles, the whole thing. I think it's fantastic. So I, I think uh, if the right opportunity came along, I would, I would be very interested in that at some point. And fun fact, um, Indiana University graduate, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Indiana University we're, East, but yeah. Yeah. You e too? Yeah. We're both yeah. Indiana University grads, yeah. That's and right. I, I didn't you, know that. And I remember you were telling me how um, because the ATP and the WTA, they pay for a percentage of the tuition if yeah. you make a C or better. Um, I remember you were telling me that because you also got in-state tuition, yeah. you were paying like $17 a semester or something. I was, yeah, because because I'm actually an Indiana resident, uh, it helped me out because I, I couldn't believe it when I saw that the school that the tours are working with is actually like an hour away from where I grew up and, and in my state. So I got the discount, I got the in-state tuition. So it was like, if I don't do this now, I'm, I'm never going to do it. Did you walk? Did you walk down? Did you have the graduation, the whole thing? Actually, I, well, sort of, I, I graduated in December. So like at the, in the Same. middle, right. But they, they were unbelievable. I happened to be home at the time I drove over, they gave me a cap and gown, like 20 people from the faculty, including my advisor came, like they made like a little cake and cookies. Like they gave me a tour of the campus. It was so lovely. They put this whole ceremony together just for me, which I thought was so cool. Cause I was, you know, nobody else was graduating or I guess anyone else that was graduating, you know, that was there was only going to be there in May or whatever. So yeah, they put like this whole thing together and it was, it was really nice actually. That's awesome. That's yeah. really cool. You made, you made, you made a really casual point here that you grew up in Indiana. It's kind of a rare, not really a hot spot in tennis. Mm -hmm. You used to have a pro tournament. I know it doesn't now that didn't have plans for some kind of challengers to come back there, but how did you figure out tennis as a pathway to college and pro and all that from such a small town in Indiana? Yeah. I mean, it's, I was really lucky actually the, the time that I was growing up there, we had a bunch of players that were either my age or slightly older that played really high level division one tennis. And some of them even played professionally to a certain extent. So I grew up around a lot of good players, um, which helped me a lot. Um, so it wasn't really like the, 
you know, small town with nobody there that knew how to hit the ball back and forth. Like I had quite a few, you know, our high school tennis at the time, a bunch of guys played really high level division one tennis that we played, you know, that we played against in the same time. So that's part of it. Um, but it's still obviously not Florida. It's not, you know, Southern California where it's just like, you know, great tennis players on, around every corner. So I think actually in a way it, it helped me a little bit. It kept tennis normal. It kept tennis as more of a hobby for until, you know, until I got to the point where I was thinking about a professional career. I think if I had played, you know, at a super intense level as a 13, 14 year old, I think I would have been, there was a chance I could have gotten burnt out by it. Cause it was, it was like tennis was just something I did on the side. I still went to normal school. I never did anything. I never went anywhere. I never went to a tennis academy and I never really had any interest in doing that. So I think in a way it actually kind of helped me to come from a place that it wasn't uh, all I thought about all the time. Did you have a backup plan? Like if things hadn't worked out and you weren't going to go pro in tennis, what was your career plan going to be? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know if I had a backup plan, but I definitely was going to go to college and go that route. I, I, again, like I, even if it wasn't going to be a professional career, I loved the sport. So whether it was going to be doing something with it in some capacity, I think I would have been involved in the game. I don't, I don't exactly know how, um, but I, I didn't really have a, a for sure backup plan, but I would have, I think it would have been involved with tennis in some way. And you're also involved now with in your, your neighborhood or your, sorry, your community. You have entourage for kids. Entourage. Mm-hmm. Entourage. Yeah. Entourage. Play on play words. On I words. like it. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. That actually came up. I played at that tournament in, in Indianapolis that you were talking about one year. I played Sam Query um, second or third round. I can't remember. And he had a group of his buddies traveling around that summer, summer called the Samurai. And so, oh, yeah. so my, my friends decided we had to, they had to come up with something to, uh, to compete against that. And that, that was how it worked out. <laughs> Very clever. I like it. And what's the purpose of the charity now? Is it just to get kids involved, particularly in tennis? Uh, what's the, the goal? Yeah. So the main thing for me, like I said, I, I think tennis is such a great pathway to making better decisions for kids that may not have the opportunity to do that. So we try and give grants and fund high school tennis programs in Indianapolis that, you know, are in need. So they, they don't have proper courts, they don't have rackets, they don't have nets, balls, whatever. So they can apply for grants through our foundation. And, you know, we give them money to basically purchase those things to hold and have a high school tennis team to where a kid maybe who's interested in tennis could have somewhere to go, you know, at the end of the day and be on a tennis team as opposed to maybe doing something else. So that's one facet of it. Another facet, we have a high performance grant that we give um, through the Midwest section, which is the section, the USTA section that it's in. So of, of a player in Indiana, that's shown high level of skill and you know needs money for traveling to tournaments and basically further their tennis career i i received that grant when i was a kid in the midwest so it just felt like you know it was an important thing for my family at the time tennis is not a cheap sport especially when you don't make any money doing it when you're a kid you know trying to you know get better at it so just something that i felt like was uh was a really was a really useful thing that i, re- I actually remember receiving that grant so i just wanted to basically give another one of those to somebody from the state oh, that's awesome I have one final question here. I, uh, yeah. I've noticed, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this a billion times, that your strokes in a way look like Pete Sampras. I'm sure yeah. I want to know if you've ever met, uh, met with him, played with him. What's your relationship like with Pete? Because he would have been only, I mean, uh, definitely a few years ahead of you. Yeah, so I, I never was in a, around, well, I shouldn't say never. I mean, I, I played a couple of U.S. Opens when I was a kid when he was still playing, but I didn't turn pro until he retired I turned pro in 2004 and he retired I guess in 2002 or three but yeah so I have played with him a few times and it's obviously come up I mean it's hard not it's hard not to have had it come up he's been very nice about it. I, I I don't have a relationship with him I don't sound like we're buddies or anything but like 
I have hit with him on occasion. And uh, like the second time I hit with him, I was, he knew I was about to hit with him and he, he just called me his twin, which any, any, any um, comparison I'll take, wow. you know, absolutely. I'll take yeah, that. I, mean, I, didn't really awesome. have a co- I didn't really have a coach growing up. I, I learned by watching. I, I guess I have a bit of a, a knack for that. But I just, uh, yeah, I thought he was awfully good. And why not try to be like the best player in the world at the time when I was, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. And it just sort of stuck. It, it just sort of became how I played the game. Um, but, yeah, I've definitely heard that before. <laughs> it's definitely worked out. Yeah. Yeah, to a certain extent. Not not quite as well as it worked for him. <laughs> but. <laughs> Oh, man. That's awesome. All right. Well, uh, let's end on that note. I really enjoyed speaking with you. I mean, we definitely t- covered a lot of topics here, but it's been a blast, Regine. Thank you for your time and the Tennis yeah. Podcast. Thank you guys for what you do, for sure. It's great. Any promotion of the game is awesome. So we really appreciate it. Thanks, Regine. Take care okay. of yourself. Yeah. All right. Bye. Bye. From the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, this has been the Tennis.com Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay caught up. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app, as well as tennis.com slash podcasts. You can also see the videos of our episodes on Tennis Channel's YouTube page and tennis.com's Facebook page. We're your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. We'd like to thank our team, editor and audio designer and video editor, Christina Koseva, producers Alexa March and Sean O'Malley, and executive producers Shelby Coleman, Kyle Einhorn, and Andy Chiu.